Hey, y'all. How's it going? If I haven't met you before, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here along with Brian, and it's really good to have you. Um, many of you have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating that we have a way for those who are new or newish to kind of let us know they were here and maybe even get together with one of the pastors or leaders of the church. It's this QR code right on the inside of your bulletin. It'll take you straight to our welcome card. And then also, moms and dads, just so you know, right across the courtyard is where all the kids' classrooms are. And then there are these cry rooms for babies on either side here. We even have the sermon notebooks out in the back this week. I know there's been a few weeks where we forgot to put those out, but for kids that are staying in service to take notes um, in any way they want to, even if those notes are like drawing pictures of Brian while he was giving announcements, that counts. Um, that's back there for you if you have kids staying in the service. And I'm getting some feedback. Uh-oh, my sound man. Oh, there's my sound man. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're incognito in the crowd to hear. I like it, baby. Um, so if uh, you could work on that a little bit. I think what I'd like to do is just jump into the scripture as soon as possible. So I'm going to ask if you would now to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word tonight. We're in Acts chapter 16, looking at um, verses 25 through 34. So not a lot of verses, but not a small amount of verses either. If you would follow along with me, I'm going to read the text for us this week. It says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that in these next few moments that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You guys can go ahead and be seated. And David, do you have the recording going? It just dawned on me that, okay, great. Excellent. Oh, hey, I've got this up here. Remember the book that I forgot to bring the last couple of weeks? I finally remembered it. The Heart of Evangelism by Jerem Bars. He's the professor at Covenant Seminary who was both my professor and a few years later, Pastor Brian's professor. Incredible guy and has written what I believe is one of the best books on evangelism that I've encountered. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I haven't read like a lot, a lot on the subject, but this is a pretty good one. 
And I even told the folks up in paradise today, I, I kind of in the moment sort of had this wild idea. I just want to like purchase a bunch of these books and then just give them out to you guys like candy. Like us trying to shove bulletins in your hands when you come in the door every week. Like I'm just going to give out these books. It's going to be like Halloween and this will be the trick or treat that you get. Um, yeah, that's probably a dumb idea, but I, I don't know. I'll run with it. I'm going to order those books, though, because I want you guys to be able to have access to this. And the reason why is because, you know, as we've said, this preaching series we're doing, it's just a small little preaching series, about eight weeks when it's all said and done. But most of the ideas are coming from this book and part of the way that it's influenced us that we want to share with you guys. And so to kind of see where it's coming from and read more in depth on these subjects, the book is a great place to do it. And one of the things that uh, Jerem Barr speaks about is this particular passage that we read today. Acts 16, the story of the Philippian jailer. Now, there is so much going on in this passage. I mean, it is a really cool story. An earthquake, and then the prison doors fly open, but none of the prisoners escape. This miraculous conversion, and even uh, that you know, that note about he and his whole household being baptized. I mean, just, uh, just want to throw that out there for some of you guys. There's a lot here, but we're going to have sort of a laser focus on one very small detail of the text today, and it is what the jailer said when he came and he fell at the feet of Paul and Silas. I've got it up here as a sermon title. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is quite the direct question, isn't it? But here's the question, excuse me, our question that we're going to be exploring today. How would you answer? Or maybe more specifically, could you answer someone if they asked you that directly? Someone comes to you in your life and says, how do I become a Christian? What must I do to be saved? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What would you say to them? I um, have to admit that it's probably going to be few and far between in your life that someone would come to you and just so directly ask that question. Most of your spiritual conversations are going to be uh, long, maybe years long, just little conversations at a time, and they're going to require a lot of patience and even you probably are going to be initiating questions like this more so than somebody coming and asking you but every now and then someone will come and ask you straight up what must I do to be saved it's happened to me twice in my life what would you say as I've reflected on this with friends and other believers over the years one thing that I think we've all kind of realized to our shame is that most Christians, and I'm not talking about new Christians, I'm talking about people that have been believers maybe for decades, go to church every Sunday, they read their Bible faithfully, most Christians have no idea how to answer that question. And when asked it directly, they are caught completely flat-footed with not knowing where to begin or what to say or how to even start they are at a loss. I think 
on one hand, there is good reason for this. And the good reason is probably kind of a misunderstanding that we have. Sometimes people, when they're maybe confronted with this question, either in real life or hypothetically, what they think is going on is that somebody is asking them to try to capture the entirety of their Christian experience in one single statement. They're trying to, uh, they're being asked to sort of summarize the entirety of the Bible and all the theology therein with a single answer. And if that's your perception of what's really being asked here, no wonder you have no idea what to say because that's a really tall order and a really difficult one to try to capture your entirety of a life of following Jesus in one answer. But on the other hand, it is an extremely bizarre and even, dare I say, tragic scenario that Christians, people who would say that being united with Jesus is at the core of their identity, would have no idea how to answer a question about how someone comes to know Jesus. How can that be? I mean, there's so many other things in our life that we can discuss just without even giving much thought to. The things that are precious in our life, like, like family and children, we can talk about for days. The things that are rather trivial, like, you know, I, I gave this example up in paradise this morning. My favorite baseball team, I could tell you about random things about that for days. But when it comes to the thing that's supposed to be most central to who I am and what my entire life is about, I'm at a loss for words. Again, how can that be? Now, the text that we read tonight, uh, if you guys were paying attention, there's part of you that might be thinking like, hey, this really isn't an issue because we have the answer to all this right there in what we read. Because right after the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? It's immediately followed up, followed up with a very simple answer. An answer that you could memorize tonight and use whenever you needed to from here on out. What, what did Paul and Silas say to this guy? Do you remember? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom. There it is. Or what this, <laughs> never mind, I was thinking of whoop, there it is, the song. <laughs> oh, reel it back in, Josh. Yeah, so, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fantastic answer. Christ-centered answer. One that, you know, we talk about all the time, we want our church to be rooted in Christ with everything we do. There it is. And yet... For someone who has no idea who Jesus is, that probably creates more questions than it does solve the problem for them. Put yourself in the shoes of the Philippian jailer. He's not from Jerusalem. He probably has no familiarity with who Jesus of Nazareth is. So he's like, great, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, who is Jesus? What did he do? And what do you mean believe in him? Do you believe he existed? Okay. Believe in something he said? 
There's a lot to unpack still in that statement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no mistake that right after Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have, and I think I have it up here on the slide, underlined, if you go to the next one. Right after they say that, they said, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So they give this, this direct statement, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then they spend an indefinite amount of time after that unpacking what that actually means and most likely answering those same questions that we just laid out. Who is Jesus? What has he done? What has he accomplished? And how do I believe in him? What does that mean? Apparently, they took some time doing that. And if we want to be people who are growing in confidence of how to share our faith and how to share it in a way that's clear and bold, we have to be people who can not only say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also explain a bit of what that actually means. And that's something of my goal for this sermon today. Of course, I'm already like a big part of the way into the sermon, so we have a lot of things to talk about from here on out. But don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here for hours and hours. Just having another 20 minutes left. But I did mention to the folks up in paradise, it was very difficult for me this week to figure out how to use that remaining 20 minutes. Because part of me wants to simply give you guys at this point helpful summaries of the gospel for you to practice to rehearse, maybe even to memorize, so that you aren't someone who's caught flat-footed when somebody asks you what you believe. And there are many of them out there. Summaries of the gospel, evangelistic tools. Some of you guys are familiar with the four spiritual laws that have been around for a long time. Or the Romans Road. Or one verse evangelism. The bridge diagram is what I learned as a new believer. Where you use Romans 6.23 and use that to really walk through the key truths of the gospel. So that if someone comes to you and says, how is it that I'm saved? What do you believe? How do I follow Jesus? You have something that you've thought about and studied. Can logically walk through the steps of the gospel. It was incredibly helpful to me as a young believer to, to be exposed to that. To help me wrap my head around the key truths of the gospel and not just get uh, just overwhelmed by trying to summarize the whole Bible. So there is definitely part of me that wants just to show you guys that and some tools that you can use and leave it there. However, there's also part of me that knows that our project for this mini-series is to look at the early church. And look at the way that the early church went about speaking about their faith and talking about Jesus to other people. And believe it or not, the early church, as we see it in the books of Acts, excuse me, the book of Acts, did not always use a rehearsed, repeatable gospel summary that they said the same time in the same way every single occasion. They didn't. There are some occasions, what we're going to see in a second, where there are a very, very identifiable core of the gospel that they repeat, that they walk through in the same sequence every time. But there are also times 
when we see the evangelist sharing the gospel through a way different approach, through a really different starting place, and talking about the same content about who Jesus is and what he's done, but coming at it from a different angle. Let let me show you what I mean. It'll be easier just to show you from the text. I've got up here on the slides a couple of places that I've done some select verses of these big gospel sermons in the book of Acts. But I think it's going to be enough with these little selections for y'all to get a taste for what I mean by this. So the first one is Acts 2. I think I have it up here on the screen. This is the very first big sort of gospel sermon Peter gives on the day of Pentecost. And I've got two slides that give us sort of a taste of what he says. And I'm going to read them for you now. Acts starting in 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This sort of, uh, I I know I had to take out some parts just for the sake of time, but this is the gist of the gospel message that Peter gives, not only here, but we see repeated in multiple places where he walks through step by step who Jesus is. Jesus of Nazareth who is also the eternal son of God, walks through what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished in his crucifixion that atoned for the sins of the world, but then also at the same time, his resurrection on the third day. Peter also says what that means for people, that it's calling for people everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. Some of the portions that I cut out of this passage are also another uh, a key piece, and that is the Old Testament quotations that he does from the Psalms and the prophets, trying to, to use that to point to the fact that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. So what we get in the end is this sort of core content of the gospel that they preached and shared, who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, what he's calling us to now. And we see that pattern repeated over and over and over again through Acts. I was, in an earlier draft of this sermon, going to read all the other places that it was, but I decided not to do that. So what I have up here is just a little bit of a rundown of some of the other ones. We see it in Acts 13, Paul preaching at Pisidian Antioch. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talking about the gospel that he shared with the Corinthians. We see it in even in the mouth of Jesus, Luke 24, his summary of the gospel, that same piece-by-piece walkthrough, who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, what he's now calling us to in repentance and faith. 
So you say, well, Josh, there's your, there's your memorized gospel summary right there. You said we don't see that in Acts, but apparently it's repeated everywhere. This common core that they shared every time in that same sequence. Not so fast. Because as soon as I'm telling you guys that we see that repeated everywhere, then we run into some places in Acts where we see them talking about the gospel in ways that are way different than this. Let's go to Acts 17. Paul's in Athens now. Again, this is selected. I've got some ellipses in there to make it a little not so long. Here we go. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's a powerful, powerful sermon he gives there, but noticeably different from most of the other sermons that we read about in Acts. And that common core that we talked about, it's there slightly. Talk about repentance and the resurrection. But the focus is on some other matters. If the early church had just sort of had this one memorized routine that they talked through every time they encountered somebody with the gospel, we would not have Acts 17. Obviously, there was some ability there to have flexibility and adaptability to, to, to ch not change the gospel. The content of the gospel is the same, but to adapt their approach in speaking about it depending on who they were talking to. And that actually is the key thing here. If you ask the question, why is that particular sermon so different? It's because of the audience. In all those other sermons, Paul, Peter, the other apostles, they were mostly speaking to people who were from a Jewish background. They were monotheist. They had shared religious assumptions. But here he's speaking to Greek philosophers. Some of them polytheists. Some of them atheists. People who had no idea about the, even the concept of sin and idolatry. The starting place had to be different. And, you know, in a future week, I kind of want to talk about how, what that shows us about how we engage with people for the gospel. But for right now, what I want you to see more than anything else is just the simple fact that in the book of Acts, there seemed to be the ability for the early church to have this sort of common, understood uh, presentation of the gospel, but that they knew it well enough that they could be flexible in how they presented it depending on who they were talking to. This is, might seem to you just a, a, a very obvious observation, but it is extremely important in the church context today. And let me tell you why. People argue 
about the most effective and proper way to do evangelism. And some people over here say there is only one right way to do it. You memorize a, a sort of a, a prepackaged gospel presentation and to keep you on track and to keep you from messing up and saying something you shouldn't, you stick to that script and you share that with anybody that you have a chance to share the gospel with. On this side, though, there's people that are saying that is crazy. That is not human relationship. Don't memorize or prepare or have a script. Just talk to people, listen to people, interact with people, and in the moment, you'll get a sense of where you should take that conversation. What I'm suggesting to you is that the early church that we see in Acts is not this, it's not that, it's somewhere in the middle. That they did have this common core of a gospel that they often went to and they knew well, walking through who Jesus was, what he accomplished, how he's calling us to repentance and faith. But because they knew that so well, they were able to adapt when they needed to. And they were able to change up their angle and approach based on who they were talking to. I want to spend the last few minutes I have with trying to give you something like that. Trying to thread the needle of not saying all we should do is have a, a pre-prepared evangelism package. No, not that. But also I don't want to just say, hey, just get in conversations and you'll figure it out as you go. No. How do I give you a gospel summary that could really be helpful for you? Maybe some of you guys that have never really thought through and pieced through, how do I talk to somebody about what belief in Jesus looks like? I want to give you that, to just begin to wrap your heads around it and maybe give you some more confidence in the interactions you have. But I want to give you that not to handcuff you to one particular summary or approach that you always have to use, but rather... That as you grow in confidence, as you grow in knowledge with that gospel summary, it frees you to talk about the gospel in a variety of different ways, depending on who you're talking to. That really is the key thing. The summary isn't about handcuffing you to a way, it's about allowing you to have flexibility. I thought about this in many different sort of ways in which we see that principle. This idea of like when you know something really well, it, it frees you uh, to be flexible. I think you see that come up in all sorts of different ways in life. But the way I thought about it um, and the way I've heard it talked about that's the most interesting is with jazz musicians. So... If you've ever been to my house, you know that I have posters everywhere of my favorite jazz saxophonist, John Coltrane. Guy was a musical genius. Like, some of his solos are just transcendent with their creativity and just memorability. And yeah, they can get pretty weird. I know it's an acquired taste. But even people that don't like jazz too much, I think sometimes you're like, wow, he's doing something here that is unbelievable. Now, here's the crazy part. If you were to sit in on a practice session that John Coltrane did every morning throughout his career, 
And I'm not meaning practice with the group he played with, just his personal practice. If you were a fly on the wall and could hear what he did, you know what you'd be hearing? Scales. Just scales, up and down, which is the most boring, monotonous, repetitive part of music, but he would practice those things. The major scales, the minor scales, and every key. The modal scales, he would do it in different intervals. And if you had sat there and listened to it, it would be the most mind-numbingly boring thing you could ever listen to. But because he knew those scales backwards and forwards, because they were so practiced over a lifetime of music that they were just internalized in him, it meant that when the solo came, when he was playing live music, he was ready to let it rip. Because he practices scales. And so in a sense, when we think about that common core of the gospel, the key pieces that we we think about, we rehearse, we talk through, it's like we're practicing the scales so that when the conversation comes, we're ready to have a real human conversation and to go where God is leading. So let's practice the scales a little bit for this last piece tonight. This is a gospel summary that comes from this book that I told you about. Professor Jaron Bars, he actually puts it in the form of questions, but I've adapted it a little bit. But this is just the bare bones to start with, but then we're going to walk through a little bit of more expansive here. Hey, and just so you know, too, I'm going to send out an email with this along with some other tools later this week. So like in Paradise this morning, people were like furiously scribbling. You don't have to do that. I'm going to send you this. So just the bare bones. One, God exists. Two, humans are sinful. Three, Jesus is the redeemer. Four, salvation is by faith alone. And finally, five, that faith produces obedience and love. Let's unpack it now. God exists. There is one God. He exists not as an idea or an impersonal force, but as the infinite impersonal God. He created the universe and exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next. Humans are sinful. This God is holy, perfect, and blameless, but we are not. We have many times done, said, and thought things that we know are wrong. If the holy God were to judge us, he would have no alternative but to condemn us. Three, Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. He entered into our world as fully human, lived the perfect life we were required to, died the death we justly deserve, and rose again from the dead. In doing all this, he has restored us to fellowship with the holy God. Salvation is by faith alone. We are called to personally accept this work of Jesus Christ. We do this by acknowledging our need for him and trusting that he is all we need for our salvation. And finally, Faith produces obedience and love. Our lives will reflect this belief in Christ by seeking to serve God with all we have. We know that we are weak and prone to fall into wrongdoing and therefore must depend on the help of the Holy Spirit. We also know that obedience to God will at times be difficult and costly, but that ultimately it will bring us the joy, hope, and restoration of the image of God within us. That's the rundown. Now, guys, I know this isn't an acronym. 
There's no helpful mnemonic device here. It's very just straightforward. And, and, and some of y'all are be like, that's not, I can't memorize that. I, that's not helpful to me at all because it's not, uh, you know, an acronym I can remember. That might be so. The point of me sharing this with y'all is not to say that this is the way. This is one of many. This just happens to be the one that was most helpful for me. But like we talked about before, the bridge diagram, the evangelism explosion questions, the uh, Romans road, whatever it could be that is helpful to you, I'm asking you to find a gospel summary that helps you wrap your head around the content of the gospel and know it. Commit to knowing it. Know it backwards and forwards. Talk about it with your friends or with your spouse. Quiz one another on it. Put it in your own words. If you're using this one, don't use my words or Jerem Barr's words, but say, how would I say this personally? And then even you might have noticed, I didn't put proof text up here, and I did that for a reason. Because part of the way you can practice this and internalize this is by thinking about your own proof text to pair with it. How, what scripture would I put beside number one, that God exists and not just an impersonal force, but a personal God who's triune? As you're doing your Bible reading, you start matching what you're reading with, yeah, this would go with this gospel summary I have. What I'm trying to challenge you with is just simply saying, let's be a people that know the content of our faith. And this does not cover everything. And even you might be thinking like, well, Josh, we could add this in there. We could add that in there. Yeah, you're probably right. But it's a start. A start for us maybe not to be caught flat-footed when somebody asked us like they did Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And remember, the point is not to handcuff you to this, to say it every time in the same way. The point is that you know it well enough. You know it backwards and forwards so that when the time comes and an opportunity presents itself to speak about it in a different way, a more versatile way, because you know this well, you're able to. You're practicing the scales so that you can play jazz. Or more specifically and accurately, so that the Lord can play jazz through you. Somebody, somebody's going to take, their only takeaway from this is going to be like, Josh said that God plays jazz. <laughs> I hope not. I think we'll stop there and head to the table. Let's pray. Father, please allow us to become people who are confident in knowing what we believe and knowing how to share it. Lord, these are just small steps in the direction of becoming more confident in that. But Lord, you know we're weak in it. You know we need to grow in it. So I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to begin applying to our hearts these things, these, these helpful things that other believers over the years have given us to grow. Lord, please, when that question comes our way, what must I do to be saved? By your grace, let us know how to answer. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. With this being the first Sunday of the month, we get to take...